Well, good morning. There's a middle school in Oregon which had a little problem it was dealing with. A uh, number of the girls that went there started to use lipstick, and they would go and they'd put it on in the bathroom. And when they were in there, they would like, uh, you know, put lip prints on the mirror and everything. And uh, yeah, it's annoying for people who actually take care of the place. And so the principal finally decided that something needed to be done. And so she brought the girls to the bathroom and was like, "Okay, look." This, this can't happen anymore. We, we got to do this. So she had the custodian there with her, and she's like, look, how, much, how difficult this is on the custodial staff. And so she said, you know, show them what you have to do every time. And so he takes out this long brush, and then he goes over to the toilet. <laughs> and he gets the brush wet, and he goes and cleans. Weirdly, they did not have any more issues <laughs> with kids kissing the mirror. <laughs> a lot of times I think that's how we act with sin. If we knew what we were getting into, we wouldn't do it, right? We think we'd be kissing some toilet cleaned mirror, which is gross. Today we're continuing our series looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For the last couple of weeks, we've really been focused on the application part of this letter and uh, we looked at chapter 4 uh, over the last couple of weeks, and now we're moving into chapter 5, like Tom said, and we're going to be staying into that mindset. We're going to look at how Paul is applying the things that we learned in the first three chapters, like the really theological things, and uh, mostly now these final three chapters, we're really focused on application, how we can apply these to our lives. The overarching theme for this section is kind of found back in Ephesians 4, verse 1, where Paul wrote, that as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then in verse 17, he kind of expands on this by telling his readers, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, this is what we looked at in last week's message. And in particular, we saw how Christians need to put off the old self, take off that old self that is dead and gone and now that Christ has rescued us from it. And we're also being made new in the attitude of their minds, meaning that they are new creations in Christ, having a new identity. They're no longer that old identity that they had, that old sinful person who is opposed to God. They're new. And then finally, they're to put on the new self which was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So as Christians, we are to take off the old, be renewed in our minds and our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and then to put on the new. And that new self is to be like God. And that's where we find ourselves today. How can we continue to learn to be like God? Ultimately, that's what we're supposed to be, right? Christ himself said that we need to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect which seems like a really lofty goal. You know why? It is a really lofty goal. Like, standard got reset to higher than, I need Zed, you know, just go really high because he's super tall. Um, our standard, way down here. The world's standard, way down here. But God has been like, no, be perfect as I am perfect. So as Christians, we're to take off the old, be renewed, and put on the new. So how do we do this? Well, we try to imitate God as best we can. About 20, 21 years ago, I started uh, working. I was working for Plasma Donation. I've talked about this before, but I was traveling a lot. I would travel to places all over the country, spent a lot of time in 
the Southeast, uh, spent way too much time in Louisiana, and uh, spent time in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Roanoke, Virginia, Tallahassee, Florida, Columbus, Georgia, and a whole lot more down in, in the Southeast. But sometimes I'd get to go to other places, like going north, like up to Michigan, or to uh, like Minneapolis, Minnesota, or Fargo, North Dakota, and uh, Salem, Oregon. But it's interesting, like when I'm, when I'm somewhere for a little while, like I start mimicking their accent. I don't know why I do it. I don't know how I do it. I just, it, it just, I'm embedded in it so long that I just keep doing it. Like I'd be there for three or four weeks and then would, would move on and everything. But, you know, I, I definitely said y'all a whole lot more after I was in Tennessee for a long time. And, uh, <laughs> oh, you want me to keep talking? Okay, sorry. <laughs> You're just so distracting. <laughs> you know, I'm coming back over here. I'll talk to you guys for a minute while he's doing that. Anyway, um, I, I said y'all a lot. I still say y'all a lot. That one stuck with me a little bit. But where I really kind of figured it out was when I went north and went to Fargo, went to North Dakota, because their accent, if you've ever heard it or you know you go up to minnesota you get that minnesota kind of canada accent and like the o's get a lot longer and so like i would say things like minnesota or fargo or oofta that's the weirdest one they were like oofta i'm like what did you just say and they're like well it's like an exclamation you're just like oh oofta so I still say oofta. It's like, oh, oofta. <laughs> Maybe my golf game would be, be, be less uh, frustrating if I would just say oofta every time I hit it. Be like, ah, oofta. Or I think it could go good to be like, oofta. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I took a vacation to Florida after I had been up in Fargo for a while. It's really not the only place I take vacation, but I do take vacation in Florida a lot because it's cheap. Because my brother lives there. But while I was there, we were going somewhere, and, and I was, I had, I, like, everything was like a long O. I'd be like, no. It's like, what? And he, he was like, what are you doing? <laughs> you don't talk like this. I'm like, well, apparently I do now. <laughs> but I had, uh, I had imitated their accent. Um, Paul writes, you know, that we should be imitating God as best that we can. Let's read the first couple of verses in Ephesians 5, where he says, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The Greek word for follow God's example is the word that we get mimic from. And it, in other English translations, you might see it in your Bibles, but it says be imitators of God. We do this, we're to do this as his dearly loved children as well. Children imitate their mom and dads, right? Again, one of the times I was on vacation in Florida, um, I, my brother used to coach uh, middle school girls basketball. And uh, he, he always loved it because they didn't know a thing about basketball down there. And especially middle school girls, they, they, they didn't know anything. So he was like, hey, we can do pretty much whatever we want. And it was, it was great. But there was a game that we went. I took my nephew Peyton. It was when he was like two or something. He was really little. And... We were watching the game, and my brother, he can get kind of animated at times. And he was trying to get the ref's attention, so he'd have his arms all spread out wide, and he'd be, you know, loudly talking to them, uh, trying to, 
get their attention and everything. And uh, at one point, Peyton is just like, ah! And I'm like, like out of nowhere, too. I'm just like, what are you doing? He's like, I just want to be like dad. I was like, that may not be the best way to imitate your father. <laughs> but I did love telling John that, you know, like, you, calm it down on the sidelines, man. We want to mimic God. We want to imitate him. So how do we do that? Well, Paul tells us. He says we walk in the way of love. We walk in the way of love. And we've got the best example for what this actually looks like because it's in Christ Jesus. Paul writes that Christ gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's what love, godly love looks like. That's what Christ's love looks like. It's sacrificial. It gives things up. He gave himself up. And it wasn't that his life was taken from him. I mean, he, he laid it down. In John 10, he says in verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of, of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So we are to walk in this way of love. Jesus told his disciples that night that he would be arrested, or on the night that he would be arrested, he told them the same thing. He said in John 15, 12, he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so we want to reflect Christ as we walk in the way of love, because that's what we're meant to do as Christians. Now, of course, that means that there's a couple things that we probably shouldn't be doing. Not probably shouldn't, things that we shouldn't be doing. And that's what Paul's kind of talking about here in this part of the passage. He's given a list of things that Christians should avoid as they walk in the way of love. So we continue in verse 3. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Sexual immorality is how we translate the Greek word pornea. Sexual immorality is, it's pretty wide-ranging, covers all kinds of sexual sin. And just in the New Testament, it's used to refer to incest, promiscuity, sexual relations with a prostitute, or just illicit sexual relations. But it really covers more than that. It's just like the gamut of sexual sin, which is sexual activity outside of God's plan for marriage. As we talked about last week, this is also one of the things that you could kind of pluck straight out of the first century and plug it right into the 21st century. Sexual immorality is rampant in our culture today. I don't know if there's ever been more access to pornography than there is right now. With the proliferation of the Internet, most people have access to it right here. Easy access to it. And the danger of pornography is closer than ever before. Pornographic website industry, it's on pace. From a uh, statistic I read, it's on pace to match the revenue of the NCAA at $1.15 billion. And while it's been used, or it used to be mainly males who accessed it, and it is still majority males, more and more women, more and more females have been accessing it now. That's one aspect of sexual immorality. Another one that's pretty big are relationships outside of marriage because 
It's just become more acceptable. All of these things have become more acceptable in our culture. Pew Research poll in 2020 noted that of Protestant Christians, 55% approve of premarital sex among adults in committed relationships. Those identified as evangelicals, would so a little bit uh, smaller slice of that, were at 46%, as were people who attend church monthly or more. So a little bit less than half, but still quite a big number. And it's far more acceptable today. We see couples that are living together without the covenant of marriage, which according to a study from the University of California, Irvine, the odds of a recent infidelity were more than twice as high for cohabitators than for married persons. And that really shouldn't be surprising to us because you really don't have a commitment, a foundational commitment that you are, are putting on that. Johns Hopkins University study found that marriages that are preceded by living together have a 50% higher disruption rate than marriages without premarital cohabitation, meaning there's a higher likelihood of separation or divorce. Now, there's a reason that Paul writes that there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among Christians. It's because it's damaging to you. There have been neurological studies that show that pornography actually rewires your brain. Like, it changes things, and it is incredibly addictive. Not if you look at studies from, like, Kinsey Institute. They won't tell you that. They'll be like, oh, no, it's not. We're, we're still working on that study. And it's like, I don't really trust you. <laughs> But other studies show that. Like, it sticks in your mind. It's such a visual medium. It stays there. We are visual creatures. And as we've seen, sexual immorality outside marriage has a greater potential of harming relationships. Now, I do want to say this, though. Sex in and of itself is a good thing created by God for married relationships. Because it's more than just a physical pleasure thing. It's uniting two people into one. Okay, so that's the first sin. The second is there must not be even a hint of impurity. Now, impurity is, is kind of tied to sexual immorality here, but it's more indicating the defilement of the whole personality. And like sexual immorality, it's mentioned in the works of the flesh, in Galatians 5.19, where Paul writes that the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, and so on. The way the word, the word is defined in my Greek-English lexicon is as moral impurity. So Paul's really moving from sexual impurity to the more broad-reaching category of moral impurity. Morality is defined as the principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. So if we're morally pure, what does that look like? Or what does it look like if we're morally impure? I think simply put, if we're morally pure, then we're following God's commands and his desire to walk as he would have us walk. But unfortunately, that's not necessarily what we're predisposed to do because we have a sinful nature that we've had since birth. So it's not really our, our default. It's not really our norm. God, uh, sin entered the world when Adam and Eve took and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only prohibition that God placed on them was to not eat from that tree. But they were deceived by the serpent, by Satan in the Garden of Eden. And so now our nature, inherited through Adam, which the Bible sometimes describes just more generally as the flesh, our nature is to not desire the things 
that God says is good. It's not to follow God's moral commands. So we need a change of nature, right? Which that's what we get when we are saved by Christ. And, and when he rescued us, we take on a new nature because we get his. As Paul writes in Romans 6, 6, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And so we now put off that old self, the self that was corrupted by deceitful desires. We were made new in the attitudes of our minds, and we put on the new self, which was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so now the spirit, which is our seal, like our promise, is in us working to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. And so in that, we are able to flee from any kind of moral impurity. Now, the third sin which he lists here is greed. And greed is defined as the desire to have more. And like with the other two, it runs counter to our culture in many, many ways. If you do a search for greed in the United States, you come across a lot of news articles which blame people for their greed which in turn makes it harder for them to make more money because of their own greed, I guess. I don't know. Or you look at the consumerism of our culture and how we constantly want the newest, the best thing. Advertisers latch on to that easily. You know, oh, you got that new phone last year. Good job. Have you seen our our new phone for this year? Which is totally not the same thing and only a little bit of a spec bump and just doesn't have a new number, even though that's really what it does. But what do they do? They, they entice you. They're like, oh, trade in your old phone. We'll give you the new one. Just keep paying us. Because that's the point, right? They want you in that cycle where they, you just keep paying for things. And it doesn't have to be electronics. That's just what I'm interested in. But it could be cars. It could be um, a new house, new clothes, whatever. But whatever it is, it's just like we're never satisfied. We, we always want something more. We don't ever have enough. Same thing with money. Like, we're never, never have enough. You're never satisfied with it. But if we're imitating God and we're walking in the way of love, then we start to learn that we can be content wherever we're at with whatever we have. Again, doesn't mean that making money is bad. Doesn't mean that having a lot of money is bad. But it's the motivation here in your heart. And it's what you do with it. If you make a lot of money, then you're generous with it. You've been blessed, so you can bless others. And when it comes to our identity, that's, that's when things get down pretty quick, goes downhill pretty quick. Like if, if money becomes your identity, or any of these things that you have greed for becomes your identity, then you're putting that in place of God. And, and you're trying to fill a hole that you cannot fill. Writer of Ecclesiastes talks about this all the time, right? It's like, oh, I tried all of these different things. It never satisfies. It's never enough. It is, it's worthless. And it becomes an idol. And so Paul says, not a hint of these things. Not even a hint of it. Why not a hint? Because these things are improper for God's holy people, he says. And if you're a follower of Jesus, again, the standard has been raised a lot And we've got to aim for that standard, not aim for the world standard. World standard, you can trip over it like it's so low. But God's standard is so high. We need help to get there. 
a help that we find in Jesus. And Paul doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 4 with a few more. He says, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So now we've moved on to how do we control our speech? You should not speak obscenities. Root word for this expresses that which is shameful or disgraceful. Shameful or indecent language. And of course, that's something that we've seen in our culture kind of morph over time. What we've said is inappropriate language. Um, things like curse words. You know, that's become far more acceptable today than it was even 20, 30, 40 years ago. If you think about movies, it used to just be the R-rated movies that would have, like, the, the really bad curse words in them, or a lot of cursing. Although, you know, as I watched PG movies from the 80s, I'm like, wow, like, there's a lot, like, the lower level, I mean, if you can really lower level curse words, but it's like the lower level curse words, there's a lot of them in there. I mean, we were doing a movie night for a youth group one time, and we were watching the movie A Christmas Story. Like, A Christmas Story. It's on TBS all the time, right? And I'm sitting there, we're watching it in youth groups years and years ago, but we got to the part where he gets the little orphan Annie decoder pin, right? And he goes to the bathroom and he is decoding the message and he figures out it's really just an advertisement to drink more Ovaltine. You know what the next line is? It's son of a B. Clear as day. We're in the basement in this church. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Because <laughs> apparently I had blocked that line out. I had no idea that that was there. And, like, of course, the kids were all shocked and appalled. <laughs> as they should have been. Alex can attest to that. He was here. <laughs> What's funny is he's like, I know Alex is one that said this, but he's like, Nick. We go to North. <laughs> like, that's way tamer than what we hear there. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. You shouldn't hear it here. <laughs> it's, but at school, like, that's the norm, right? Like, it's, it's the norm now. I mean, you, you go out anywhere. You just hear people dropping F-bombs all over the place. And it's just like, ah. We don't have to join the culture in, in doing that ourselves. There's no obscene talk. Foolish talk is the next thing. It's kind of like when people are talking just to hear themselves talk. You know, it's just like they babble and everything comes out. One commentator called it a talk that may be empty and speculative or even dangerous to salvation. It's the kind of talk that does not edify anybody. It doesn't build them up. Whether you're talking to people or about people doesn't really serve a purpose, and so we should avoid it. And the third thing that it talks about here is coarse joking. Warren Wearsby writes that joking is a translation of a word that means able to turn easily, and so this suggests a certain kind of conversationalist who can turn any statement into a coarse joke. Now, wit and being funny, that's not a bad thing. We love humor, right? Humor is wonderful. But when the jokes are inappropriate or rude, vulgar, crude, then that's not really where we should be as Christians. Where we should be as Christians is it's found at the end. Instead of being obscene, foolish, having crude jokes in our speech, we should give thanksgiving. 
That should be our norm. Like everything else is out of place for a believer, Paul says. But Thanksgiving should be what is normal for us. Klein Snodgrass writes that Thanksgiving is the basic attitude of the Christian, for it forces attention not on me, but on God. His grace, his desires, rather than our own desires. Now, Paul concludes this passage by giving a pretty dire warning in verse five, verses 5 through 7. You ever had somebody like a friend or a boss come up to you and say something like, hey, we need to talk. And you know by their tone, by, by how they're saying it, like this is something important. And, and you got to have those kinds of conversations sometimes, especially if we're heading down a wrong path, especially if we're heading somewhere destructive. It's those kinds of conversations where you kind of strip everything else away and just get to the point you don't really hold back at all because you don't really have time. And Paul's having that conversation with his readers. He's going to tell them the truth. He's not going to hold back because he says in verse 5, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, 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 impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. The immoral, oh, I did it again. (laughs) I want to say immoral and impure at the same time. Yeah. The immoral, impure, and greedy, they are called idolaters. They make an idol out of these things like sex or money, which are not God. They elevate them above God. And, And so they've got no inheritance in the kingdom is what Paul says. In fact, Paul wants to be absolutely clear about this. He says, look, don't let anybody deceive you with their words. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Those who are glorifying these things are going to face God's wrath. And so don't partner with them. Don't join in with them. And that is a difficult teaching. Like, that's tough. But you need to remember, what Paul is doing here is he's drawing a contrast between believers and non-believers. And He's like, this is the way of the world. This is the example of those who are not following God, who are not trying to imitate God. It's the way of those who haven't followed Christ, and it is a way that leads to destruction. And so Paul's warning is that Christians wouldn't be dragged down to how they used to live. I mean, remember back in chapter 4, verse 17, which kind of started this section, Paul tells him not to live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking, because this is where the futility of their thinking leads, and it's to destruction. This is why he says there should not even be a hint of this. Don't play around with them. Don't be like, oh, I'll just dip my toes in. It won't be that bad. It is a slippery slope that you'll fall into. And that doesn't mean that we've got to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we're not going to sin in these ways. But it means that when we do, we know how we can get out, how we can stand up under these temptations. We confess and we repent. We turn away from them. As Christians, we've been forgiven our sins through the death of Christ on the cross. We've already been forgiven our sins. We don't have to fear that we're not going to have an inheritance in the kingdom because we've been saved from that. But if these sins have become habitual, if you've made them an idol, placing them 
ahead of God, then you've got to repent from that. Absolutely have to stop, turn away. Need to walk away from them, but you don't have to do it on your own because the Holy Spirit is always with you. Always. But do not justify it. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he tells Timothy, as a man of God, to flee from all kinds of sins and to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. If you're struggling with any of these, you need to get free of it. And the Holy Spirit will help. He's not going to leave you alone with it. And you know, this isn't the easiest thing to teach on. Right? I'm not trying to call anybody out or anything like that. Like, if you're feeling convicted today, that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit working. I just want you to live in the freedom that Christ has bought for you. You do not have to be a slave to any sin at all. You don't have to live like the rest of the world does. You don't have to live like you lived before you were saved. You are a new creation. You're created to be like Christ, which I know is, that's a, that's a hard, hard goal to hit. But he does not leave you. He does not forsake you to do it on your own. He is doing a good work in you that he will finish. And we may not see all the benefits on this side of heaven. Man, we're going to see some really good ones on the other side. Put off that old person. Be renewed in your minds. Put on the new. And be imitators of God. Because you are his dearly loved children. And live that life of love like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, teachings like this as we read through your word these are things we can struggle with because this is still so prevalent in today's world. And it's so easy to fall into it. But Lord, we know that you've promised that you'll be with us. As your followers, you've got a hold of us. And you will help walk us out of that. All of us at one point who are followers of you were in this same spot as those who are stuck in this sin, any of these sins. like we, we were stuck in our own sins, even if it wasn't these six that we talked about today. But you rescued us from that. And you can rescue any of us who are stuck in there. Like there's, We're not out of your reach. And I pray that you would help us today, that if... If there's anybody here that needs to know that, 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 that just soaks in, and they know that truth. And we know this, Lord, because you, you crucified our sins to the cross with you. In that love that we are to imitate, that love that is a sacrificial love for our friends and our family, and our loved ones. And Lord, you, you've promised not to leave us, not to forsake us. You will be there with us. 
for those of us who have been following you, Lord, you help us, help us to live separate from this world. To be a light, though, for those who are still stuck in sin, still enslaved to sin. Help us to be a light, that lighthouse on a shore. Because that's, we know that's where Paul's going in his next verse. That we are now a light. We don't walk in the darkness anymore. It's because of you and your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for his sacrifice. We come around the table now for communion to remember the sacrifice that he made. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.